0: This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, in this mysterious Zoom realm that we're in, it's really amazing that we can gather in a way that's, I think some of us at least have found is surprisingly intimate in terms of spiritual community. And uh, there's something really powerful when a bunch of folks gather around these teachings from the Buddha, And even more powerful, of course, when we kind of directly apply the teachings right here in our heart, in our mind. So I thought it'd be nice to sit for about 30 minutes. So do what you need to stabilize your posture, relatively still, relatively comfortable, relatively upright, whatever, That might feel and look like for your body tonight. And it's nice just to have that sense of joining our innumerable spiritual ancestors, you know, this basic ritual of sitting relatively still, relatively upright inviting a relaxation around the eyes, around the jaw, mouth and the shoulders and arms, around the heart, through the belly, down to the floor, the pelvis, and down through the legs. Softening and as I'm guessing all of you know, it really matters what the mind chooses to keep in mind. So as people interested in these teachings from the Buddha, one of the things that we choose to keep in mind is this present moment, this recognition of the present moment, that this experience is being known here and now. And we often use embodiment as a support for keeping the present moment in mind, it's like this sitting is like this. And it may be relatively easy to recognize the quality of metta. this possibility of basic goodness, basic friendliness, as we relate to the body that's sitting in this ocean of physical sensations, moving, coming and going, changing. Not too much of a stretch to Recognize this possibility of relating to the sitting body in a friendly way, a kindly way. And you don't need to use phrases or even mental images, but it's okay if that's supportive. I care about this body. I care enough to be present right now with this movement of sensation here in the body. I care enough of the body to be willing to feel what is here to feel, not to be afraid, to be sensitive, to be in a way exposed to the body just as it is. and I care enough, friendly enough, to be able to be wanting to wish well for the body. Just that simple generosity of the heart, and that wish may be just a warm inner smile toward the body, just an appreciative smile. May this body be at ease. And learning that we can keep this friendly attitude, this generous, Perhaps even radiant attitude of love, of friendliness in mind, toward the body, toward the sensitive heart itself. This sensitive heart that all day long impinged upon. Moment by moment, one sense experience after another, a thought, a sound, a touch. I care about this sensitive heart right here, right in the middle. I care enough to simply open and feel what's moving here. this river of feeling. And I care enough to wish well for this heart, this mind, this life. May this heart be safe. May wisdom and love protect this heart always. And may this heart be at ease. And again, you can repeat a phrase or bring to mind an image, but we're just keeping in mind this kind, this friendly relationship to the heart. Even if our heart feels closed down now or tender or broken or hard or, No matter the particular feeling, quality in the heart right now, isn't it possible to care about it, to wish well for it? May this heart be at ease with conditions as they are. May this heart be at ease Caring enough to be present, to keep the heart in mind, the quality of the heart, to keep it in mind, to feel what's here to feel. And caring enough to wish well this expansive, generous quality of love. May this heart be at ease. Is it possible to abide, to rest in this expansive, wholesome, beautiful quality of metta-friendliness? learning to sense, to attune to the radiant, the expansive quality of this attitude of love, like a warm, generous smile that goes out in all directions May this heart be at ease. May all hearts, all sensitive beings be at ease with the conditions as they are. May wisdom and love protect us all. So we're choosing to keep this quality of love, this quality of metta in mind. Learning to abide, to rest, to allow it to fill the space of the mind, the heart and body. It's okay if the practice needs some support just to repeat a word like kindness or metta at some frequency so that the heart is remembering what it wants to keep in mind. And particularly, we're interested in that boundless, expansive, buoyant, generous quality, and really learning to trust it and abide in in a sense to be this love, this generous, well-wishing, May all beings, this being, all beings be at ease, happy and at ease. learning how to take refuge in the beautiful attitude, quality of love, boundless, generous, completely trustworthy. Buddha instructed, I will abide pervading all quarters with this heart imbued with love, metta. Above and below, all around, everywhere and every way, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with this heart imbued with love, abundant, boundless, immeasurable, free from hostility and ill will, I will abide. So we just do the best we can to trust this capacity for metta, this generous, loving, kind, tender-hearted attitude. And we learn how to rest, to abide, to trust it. And behind this, underneath this radiant and generous kindness is a very beautiful enlivened equanimity, a radiant balance of the heart. a love infused with wisdom that understands that everything comes and goes according to so many causes and conditions. This beautiful, generous balance of the heart knows how to include, knows how to be close, open, even when things are confusing or ambiguous or uncertain. It's a generous yes. Yes, it's like this. So in a way, we're learning how to distill love into this pure, radiant, generous balance that can include everything as it is. Not in conflict with anything. And this is a beautiful, generous abiding, the abiding of equanimity, upekka. Beautiful gift to ourselves and to all beings. Offering this enlivened radiant balance. And not asking, needing anything back. Things are the way that they are now. May all beings be happy and peaceful and may they know things are just as they are. And feel free to take a little time to adjust. Again, it's nice to be here. And uh, it's been um, quite a, time here in Minneapolis, as I'm sure many of you are aware of. And uh, my partner and I were just at the George Floyd Square, the place where he was killed um, earlier this afternoon with a large crowd just after the verdict was reported. So here is our swirling sensual world. And if you didn't catch the Topic that I wanted to talk a little about, and hopefully people will have comments and questions before we end. It's like, what is a wise way to relate to this, to our existential situation, right? So, what is our existential situation? Well, we're here, and in a way, the most obvious thing about being here is sensitivity. We're sensitive here, Mm -hmm. here and now. We're sensitive. What are we sensitive to? Well, whatever's moving here and now. And um, on top of just this exposure, this endless, ceaseless impingement by sense experience, sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches, and even our thoughts so much of our mental activity are thoughts about sensual sensual experience sense experience right and you know our system is pretty simplistic so a thought about pleasure like eating chocolate has a very similar impact to eating chocolate just like a thought about something bad happening you know it evokes a physiological response, just like a dream does. So this is our situation, and then on top of that, we have a view or a thought and a concept and idea about what's going on here. And uh, you know, one way, um, one view we have is like we have some—not that we're even conscious of it—but we have some idea that this world of experiencing that's happening is really here. Just reflect on that. And not so much like what you think philosophically the purpose of the world is, but given your actions, given how you relate to sensuality, to sense experience, what view do your actions come out of? So a lot like when we look at, when we're honest about how mostly this mind, body, heart, whatever, this life is relating to sensuality, to sense experience. Honestly, a lot of the time, we're expecting the world of sense experience to deliver happiness to me the so-called me, right? Some version of the Garden of Eden. You know, the, the point of being a sensitive person is to partake in sense experience in a way like to use my personal power, my personal degrees of freedom, privilege, to enjoy myself, to enjoy the woods, to enjoy food, to enjoy physical affection and sex, and to enjoy ideas and to enjoy this and that. And then (laughs) when, when circumstances are such that we're delivered enough betrayal and disappointment in a row, then another view can get activated, which is the world of sense experience is here to mess with me or punish me. You know, it's a setup. And of course, some people who have a less privileged or less good fortune in their lives, that view comes on more quickly, of course. And you probably, some of you at least remember like in that in the first Dharma talk from the Buddha where he outlined the Four Noble Truths, you know, right at the beginning of that talk, that sutta, the Buddha talks about the middle way. Thinking that sense indulging in sense experience is what this is all about. Right? The Buddha said, well, no, that's not it. Thinking about giving up on sense experience that, oh, you know, the problem, the cause of suffering is desire for sense experience. I've got to stop desiring food, desiring comfort, desiring warmth, then I'll be happy. So asceticism. And the Buddha gave up on that as the answer. Being afraid of desire, thinking desire and gratifying desire is going to lead to lasting happiness. The Buddha and many spiritual practitioners, right? We realize the limitations. There is gratification, but it's limited. We're not in control. It's uncertain and it doesn't last. And how many, you know, it would be, we could spend more than a couple hours sharing war stories about ways we've given up on sense experience, like after the last breakup, you know, some of you have had breakups with partners and it's like, oh, I'm done with relationships. Or you, you know, even overeating for lunch, I'm done with eating, I'm never gonna eat again. Or whatever, where we think that somehow the answer to life's problems, what might lead to real happiness, is like if only I got rid of all my desires. And the Buddha then says, "What's? Well, it's neither pathologizing desire, nor is it about gratifying desire." Those are empty paths, frustrating pathways. And the middle way is not somewhere between the two, but don't do that. Abandon that and abandon that and see see what's left. And then, of course, he describes it as the Eightfold Path, as most or many of you know, probably. And, you know, part of that path is really seeing the limitations of acting out are impulses. So the, the training in sila, you know, is really knowing there are the impulse to take what I want, to say what I want, but developing the power to refrain from doing that. Yeah, I could do that, I could say that, I could take that. I could act out my anger in this way. Because it's really about that, um, you know, using our personal power to get what we want. So the precepts or the the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on sila, morality, ethical conduct. It's really about realizing this power to refrain from using or whatever power or privilege we may have. But I don't have to use it, and. So we can refrain when using it would be planting seeds, you know, setting stuff in motion that would cause a lot of harm for myself and others, like sexual misconduct, or saying something that we'll very quickly regret, ruining, destroying a relationship that really matters because we blurted out something that we should have. You know, we were upset and we just wanted to hurt the other person. So we said something and now the other person can't really forgive us and they don't want to have anything to do with us. And uh, the other part of the Eightfold Path is about Samadhi, you know, and really this superpower of like, I could mentally proliferate around this problem, this hope, that fear, But I know how to put down that impulse. And even the more subtle part of the Eightfold Path, around the wisdom part, around intention and view, it's also about putting something down. You know, the fixedness of a view, the self view, the the sort of holding to a view, the arrogant certainty that we know, that we like have captured the understanding. And this, of course, is the path of renunciation. I remember uh, a practice meeting with Sayadaw Utejaniya. Some of you know of him, a wonderful Burmese Sayadaw, a monk and teacher, meditation teacher, who's come to the West a number of times, and including Spirit Rock a number of times. And I was on retreat there at Spirit Rock, and he was meeting with some Dharma teachers during his two-week retreat. And he looked at all of us, and he said something like, are the Buddhist teachings optimistic or pessimistic? And then he'd sort of stare at, different people in the room until they had to commit one way or the other, optimistic or pessimistic. And after he had enough people committed, then you knew it was a setup. And then he goes, it's neither. The teachings, the Buddhist teachings are realistic. So this is the, you know, what we wanna do instead of thinking that sensuality, this world of sense experience is really here, to deliver happiness and the fact that i'm not happy somehow i haven't used my you know willfulness my personal power to gather the sense experiences that can make me happy so we might feel like a personal failure you know i haven't cultivated my garden well enough i haven't charmed people well enough to make them my friends i cuz the world is here and it's abundant and it's Supposed to make me happy and it hasn't. So either we, you know, think we're, we're a failure and, we, and the conclusion is, well, I should try harder or I'm pursuing the wrong kind of sense experiences. Let me pursue these other sense experiences. So maybe initially we thought it was all about having a lot and then we decided, you know, I'm going to be a minimalist and I'm going to get by having very little. But they're still sort of in that realm of like sense experience is going to be the answer. And like I mentioned before, you know, when we've been burnt enough, we want to give up on it. Sylvia Borstein, uh, I'm sure many of you know, a wonderful Buddhist teacher in this early Buddhist uh, lineage one of the founders of Spirit Rock. One of her books just has this line, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it's empty. So just think about sense desires, like attraction to another human being or really, you know, sitting and you're having a difficult sit and you really, really, really want it to end, but you're with a group. So, you're going to stick with it because you'd be ashamed to move before the bell rings or something like that. And so, what is, the, what is that? Does, what is desire empty of? Desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it's empty. And this really has to do with this, like how to relate skillfully to sensuality. And I really like this, Uh, the person who I first heard make this very clear was Ajahn Samedo, this wonderful Western Buddhist monk, where he he just kind of clarified the difference between desire, which I would think of, I like to think of as the ordinary, unavoidable, animating force behind life it's sort of the primary characteristic of life is desire. And then when this identification or this misperceiving or attachment to desire arises, then we get craving. And just to make that clear distinction between desire as an animating force in the human body-mind, And when we add a wrong understanding to the experience of desire, then we get the beginning of suffering. We get craving, which hurts. There's a somebody who thinks that this desire refers back to a me, it's my desire, this promise, like if this, then I'll be happy. Whether it's aversion, if I get rid of something that's painful, then I'll be happy, or greed, if I get something, then I'll be happy. And so part of developing a a wise relationship to sensuality is just getting clear about what desire is and what it isn't. Like, oh, desire is empty meaning it's just what it is, and it's empty of everything else. So what is desire? It's the actual experience we experience when there's desire. So it's totally knowable, right? Because it's happening all the time. We get a little cold, and there's a desire to be warm. We get a little hungry, and there's a desire to feed ourselves. We get a little confused, and there's there's a desire for clarity. So, the trick is: uh, can we be respectful of not enough of the experience of desire, so that we bring a real, pure, powerful interest? We just finished. Uh, I just finished teaching a seven-week class on the. Uh, Second foundation, mindfulness of feeling tone. And I like how Venable Anaglio, this German monk, he talks about the push of feeling tone. And I think this has a lot to do with developing wisdom around sensuality. It's just like there's no way to avoid the push of feeling tone. So we're walking on the sidewalk and somebody's dog left some dog poop. And we, there's that visual experience and the thought, you know, maybe the thought about the owner of the dog or something like that, but whether it's the smell or the sight or the thought of the owner being inconsiderate, but whatever that contact is, there might be an unpleasant feeling tone. And that's a kind of push, an impulse, The heart is inclined to go from the unpleasantness to the ownership of the unpleasantness, like craving, that shouldn't happen. That's not okay. And then maybe doing something about it. You know, I'm going to send an email to the neighborhood association or something like that. And then we do that. And that, that's that whole sequence that for those who study the suttas, you know, that the Buddha maps out as dependent co-arising. You know, there is the six sense gates. There's a sensitive human being in these six ways through the five physical senses, through thought and mental activity. And because of the sensitivity, there's sense contact. Because of contact, there's an inevitable feeling tone. It's a way that the past informs the present. How I experience feeling tone is conditioned by past experience, whether I the mind sees it, feels it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the question is, you know, we will have feeling tone. Awakened beings have feeling tone, right? But the feeling tone can be seen for what it is, and empty of everything else. So I really like this sort of definition of empty, you know, because it can sound so philosophical. Something is empty of what's not there. When we contemplate the heart, the emptiness of the mind and heart, we're experiencing the mind as being empty of what's not there. So maybe the hindrances aren't there. Okay, the mind is empty of the hindrances. Maybe selfing, self-centered framing isn't there. Okay, so the mind is empty of that. The way the Buddha, you know, talks about somebody who's wise, and he just, you know, he he said directly, you know, in terms of the gratification of sense experience, I've paid attention. I know the experience of gratifying experience, sense experience. I know that ex- I know that experience of gratification, and in terms of the drawback drawbacks of sense experience. There may be other people who know it, but nobody knows it more than me. They may know it as much as me, but I've studied the drawbacks of sense experience and the escape that I've studied too. There's a very fun uh, discourse where some lay people (coughs) went to see Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha and, they were just kind of blown away by you know, the degree of renunciation that they saw in the sangha, in the monastic sangha. And so then Ananda reported this to the Buddha. And this is the conversation he reported to the Buddha because the householder said, um, we are householders who indulge in sensuality delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, um, I'm sorry, Let me get back there. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, enjoying it, rejoicing in it, renunciation seems like a sheer drop off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, The hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people. In other words, we don't get renunciation, you know? And so the Buddha responded to Ananda, so it is. So it is Ananda, even I myself before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause? What is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? Doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seen it as peace. Then the thought occurred to me. I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. You know, kept that theme in mind. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That is why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation doesn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. And this is really this particular teaching, this getting interested in the drawbacks of sensuality and getting interested in the joy of renunciation. This is really what distinguishes the Buddhist teachings from other spiritual practices. Because you know the Buddha didn't always lead with these teachings on renunciation. Because we'd be like those householders, like it doesn't make sense to me. So often, you know, many of you know, the Buddha would start by teaching about dana and sila, generosity and and um, this deep valuing around non-harming and just developing calm. You want to be happy, you know, people from their ordinary point of view, struggling to have a happy life, you know, hoping the Buddha could help them out. Yeah, he would say, oh, you really want to be happy? You want good things to happen? Cultivate generosity. Really cultivate uh, kind of a, a generous commitment to non-harming, not causing harm to other beings, including yourself. And like, does that work? And the interesting thing is it's sort of, it's a very earthy grounded way to get in the vicinity of these deeper teachings on renunciation. Because when we unpack the more subtle teachings of the Buddha he's pointing to a radical shift in how the heart relates to sensuality. But we get, us, we get the flavor when we understand, just through our own experimentation, the heaviness of stinginess and the lightness of being generous, living in a generous way. I mean, even in the guided meditation tonight, perhaps you notice all we were doing Right? It didn't cost us a lot. We were just practicing abiding in that generous heart of kindness. Like, like, I can offer that to the world. May you be well. May you be happy. As opposed to, you know, that gravitational pull about me and mine and how I can secure my happiness. What do I need from this moment? Because the basic, you know, when we're in the, the view that sensuality is here to make me happy, we're in we it doesn't always look desperate, but underneath the surface, there's a desperation where we're looking for an experience as if somebody's gonna feed on that experience and get satisfied by consuming that experience. So the mind is restlessly constructing and feeding on experience. And that's what we call an ordinary or what the Buddha would call a worldly existence. There's this view, this mostly unseen view, operating system, (laughs) governing our mind. And it's all about this presumption that experience is to be created like to use our willpower or volition, make something happen, get some experience, consume it, and then be satisfied because of the consumption by getting that experience, having that experience. But has anybody been satisfied by that, right? We're just trapped in that pursuit, and that's what we call samsara, the endlessness of that pursuit, because it never satisfies. And that's that insight into dukkha. That experience is fundamentally not satisfying a me, because the me is constantly involved in the next experience, hoping that it will provide satisfaction. So the Buddha like he says he took up the contemplation the study of the drawbacks of sensuality and he took up the study of the joy of renunciation. So even in those ordinary ways when when we like somebody needs our help and instead of being stingy about it we just sort of go for it, okay. If I'm going to help this person, I'm not going to spend my time regretting it while I'm helping them. I'm gonna really align with the generosity. Like, hey, I'm all in. You know, this half day is for you, I'm here to help. I'm not gonna be regretting it even while I'm helping you because that's just suffering. So if we're gonna do something, it's like I, I even practice this with taxes. I don't know if anybody else does this, but you know, as a young adult, Uh, When I was starting my practice, I didn't like paying taxes, and I thought, you know, I'm going to pay my tax, so why, why am I not liking it? You know, it just didn't make sense. So now I, when I pay my tax, it's like I cultivate this attitude: I'm happy to give money to the government so they can do what they do with it. Not that they do exactly what I want them to do with it, but I, I'm happy that there's this system of operating as a collective. I don't want to be responsible for the roads and the bridges and the this is and the that's and the safety net as imperfect as all of those things are. And so, and it just feels so much better to make the pain of taxes something that I willfully give instead of something that I grudgingly give. Why, why have that attitude? It, it's just not functional. It doesn't help. So this is how we start to cultivate that uh, sort of setting the heart up to understand the deeper teachings of renunciation. Same with morality, like to really see that power of refraining, like I could, I could say something to that person that would be a real zinger and put them in their place, but I'm not gonna do it because I really value not harming. I don't wanna plant seeds. And I know how to let go. Like I feel that aggressive or that um, hateful or that angry impulse, I feel it. There is that desire to get even. Desire is natural but I'm not, I don't have to uh, personalize that desire where then I have to act it out because I have this other possibility, wisely knowing that the desire feels like this, that impulse feels like this. That's the push of feeling. Oh, there's a feeling tone and I know how to be with that feeling tone. And like everything else, it comes and goes. And as you probably can guess, you know you know how these stories go. So the Buddha de- did study the drawbacks of sensuality and did study the joy of renunciation. And then his heart did leap up at renunciation, grow confident in renunciation as the essence of the path of awakening, letting go of what can be let go of. And it's really this it's not a rejection of sensuality, it's realizing the heart that's not dependent on sensuality. And this, is really, uh, this really helps us understand so much of our meditative work because even when we're just using our hour or half an hour or whatever to settle what has been activated during the day or during the week, right, It's a profound renunciation. I could worry about that, I could plan that, but I'm choosing to align with the pleasure of being present, the pleasure of secluding the mind from reactivity, from identification, from attachment. And even you know, with the uh, the contemplation of equanimity and balance, you know, we'll feel all the little tugs and pushes to take the bait, and we get you know, even in you know, twenty minutes of being in that more refined state of balance, we get multiple moments of feeling that subtle joy of renunciation. Like there was a moment where we could go from the push of a feeling to craving to grasping to becoming to, in a way, that karmic fruit of whatever that grasping set emotion in our heart, in the mind stream. But we don't have to. And so just even in a 20-minute period where we're in a refined state of concentration, that stability of present moment awareness and that beautiful balance, generous balance. And it's really purifying those latent tendency to try to get something, to consume something in order to be satisfied. That's the project the mind is giving up on to be satisfied, to be happy, I need an experience to consume. But you know, when we're in that more peaceful, refined place and the impulse to have an experience, like to think about something so that I get something from thinking about it, it starts to stand out as what? Stressful. Oh yeah, I could do that, but why? So we're, we're learning that this happiness, the peace of not consuming experience, not trying to extract happiness from sense experience. You know, the Buddha uses a very graphic image for this. I'll just paraphrase it, but the idea is that there's a very skilled butcher who slices all the meat off of the bones so there's literally no meat left on the bones, just a little smeared blood, and throws the bones, the chain of bones down for his dog. And the dog is so happy, thinking there's gonna be some flesh, some nutriment in that chain of bones, but only finding weariness, right? Chewing, 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 just enough to make it smell like food, <laughs> but it's really just bones and the dog is frustrated. And, uh, you know, this is a lot of what we train in. We watch our mind taking the bait, getting entangled in some promise. If only I get rid of this painful experience, or if only I get this pleasant experience, then I'll be happy, only to be left unsatisfied ultimately, maybe immediately, or maybe down the road. But to see that there wasn't really anything in this for me. It really wasn't able to satisfy that sense of a me. So how many times, like the Buddha says in one of the suttas, have we seen this enough to be disenchanted, or do we need to keep seeing it? you know, around sense experience. And it's not that we give up on the project of buying a new sweater or, you know, buying nice food. This is, uh, I think Rebecca Bradshaw had this simple line. She calls it mature love for the world of experience where we learn to see the beauty and the limitations of sense experience together. And I think that's really, the key, you know, and it makes our spouses more beautiful and it makes our meals more beautiful and our walks in the woods more beautiful. When we see both the beauty, the pleasantness of our pleasant sense experience, But right integrated in that is the understanding that it's just what it is. And it's empty of anything else. It really can't satisfy a somebody, it's just what it is. I really remember this moment during one of the three month retreats at IMS in Massachusetts. <clears throat> and uh, some of you probably have been there, but it's, they have a beautiful pond not too far from the retreat property, Gaston Pond. And I was was in the fall and beautiful New England leaves and a beautiful sunset looking to the west. And, uh, you know, there it was, it was a pleasant visual experience and I noticed that push of pleasantness and I noticed that that push of pleasantness was empty. It was just that push of pleasantness. It was just pleasantness being known. And every time the mind explored, like where that, if if the mind acted, identified with the push and, tried to do something about it, it would always go to something like, I need to build a cabin in a place like this. So it's mine and I can have it whenever I want it. Or I hope tomorrow is this nice. Maybe I should come here every evening to see the sunset. But every time the mind took that step from pleasantness, that push of pleasantness to some kind of identification, some sort of action based on the pleasantness, it was immediately felt as stressful. And that's the drawback of sensuality. is the deep habit of thinking there's somebody who needs to consume it, to get something from it. So can we be, a, be sensual beings, sensitive beings, without expecting anything from the experience of being a central being. We can't take it with us. <laughs> and th- this is like what we would call a mature practitioner, right? Like they still might have nice stuff if that's if it's not causing anybody harm to have that nice stuff. But they're not, we're not imagining the nice stuff as anything more than the pleasantness being known just like the unpleasant stuff, having to go to the dentist or being sick or being in the dying process. Well, that's just what it is. Endless amounts to say about sensuality, but I'll leave it here.